Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. that we're, you know, we're beginning to invert, embrace our diversity a little more, I believe, and to help celebrate a lot of these soldiers, Revolutionary War soldiers and warriors who have been almost invisible. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Vic DeSanto discussing the creation of a new monument to a forgotten Revolutionary War hero, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Vic DeSanto, and he'll be discussing a new statue of the forgotten Revolutionary War hero, Daniel Nimham. Now, Daniel Nimham represents the Native American side of the story, but unlike many of the Native peoples of the New World, his people, the Stockbridges, as they'd be known, sided with the Patriot cause. It's a wonderful story, and I hope you enjoy reading it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Vic DeSanto. Vic DeSanto, welcome back. Thanks, Brady. I'm glad to be here. Vic, you've been on the show before. Remind us about your background. Well, I've been doing a lot of research lately about the lower Hudson Valley because that's where I was, where I grew up. I was born in the Bronx when I was five. My family moved to Lake Carmel, about 50 miles north of the Bronx. And actually, at the age of six, I witnessed the unveiling of the Civil Ludington uh, statue. When I was 10, we moved into Westchester County, right across the border from Putnam County, and uh, pretty much went to high school there. After that, joined the Army. Afterward, after that, attended Westchester Community College for a few years, and then pursued degrees in history at SUNY Albany, a BA and an MA, and a PhD at SUNY Binghamton. I've always specialized in American social history, particularly labor and working class history. I never really pursued an academic career. Um, I always worked in museums or in historic preservation. Vic, what first drew your interest into this topic? I was actually uh, doing some research on David Williams, one of the captures of Andre, and I came across a passage that the Stockbridge Indians were patrolling Westchester County uh, neutral zone during the Revolution, and this really surprised me. Um, I didn't know they were there; they were kind of invisible to me. Their association with David Williams was. They were actually augmenting a New York State Troop Regiment, Graham's Levies, in the neutral zone, and he was a member of. He was doing a nine-month tour in the Levies at that time. So I, I made a mental note to myself to 
learn more about this when I had time. Later on, about two years after that point, um, the monument of Daniel Ninnam was put up. So that kind of motivated me to learn more about who he was and what brought him to the Battle of Kingsbridge. As I mentioned, I had lived in Carmel, New York for a while. That was part of Dutchess County when uh, Nimhim was alive, and he actually lived there. There's a mountain there named after a mountain Nimhim. So I was familiar with the name a bit, but I didn't know too much about him. So I wanted to learn more about him after I did. Uh, I really wanted to write about the monument, but I thought it was necessary just to give some historical background. But I felt the main important part was the uh, interview with the artist. Could you tell us about the Nimham statue? The artist was uh, Michael Karopian. He's a resident of Carmel. He was uh, originally from Connecticut. He was approached by some local historians to manufacture a, a statue dedicated to Nimhim, so he did some research and came up with a model. But unfortunately, he never really was able to find funding. Uh, he kept, he really hung in there. He went around from town to town in the area looking for a sponsor. And finally, after 20 years, the town of Fishkill contacted him and was willing to go forward with the project. The statue itself, it's at a main intersection, kind of on an island that's shaped like an arrowhead. It's a pretty awe-inspiring monument. It's, it's an eight-foot statue, probably on a stone base, which is about three or four feet. There's a image of um, Nimhim. They didn't really... There's no paintings of him, images of him. So the author, I mean, the sculptor did a lot of research about what Algonquin Indians would have looked like by researching uh, skeleton remains at the Smithsonian and also by talking and viewing pictures of Nimhin's, talking to and viewing pictures of Nimhin's uh, descendants. The statue itself, it's Nimhin. Um, he's dressed in linen trousers and kind of a linen tunic with a belt around his waist. In his belt, there's a treaty that's dated 1746, symbolizing that every treaty with the Wappinger tribe was pretty much broken by the colonial government in England. Um, he's leaving behind a deed or, or a land survey uh, on a tree stump. And that symbolizes that pretty much the legal deeds that the Wappagers had to the land was thrown out of court by colonial authorities. So they felt, you know, it was worthless. The tree stump is symbolic for a, a life cut short because he died, you know, fairly young um, in battle at the Battle of Kingsbridge. Also, he has on a pair of center seam moccasins. Uh, 
I believe there's a knife around his neck. He's carrying a musket in one hand. And uh, behind his back, he has a kind of a bow and arrow strung, so the uh, the string is across his chest. The bow part is behind his back. And he has a quiver that has a, a wolf head on it because he was a member of the wolf clan. Um, clans are kind of an extended family in the, many of the native nations. In the Muncie Mohican group, which actually absorbed the Wappingers, there's only four clans. There's the bear, the, the wolf, the turtle, and... Uh, What's the other one? And the turkey. Uh, you're not allowed to marry somebody within your clan. It's so it's a it's a way of preventing a, a lot of inbreeding. So he's um, given up fighting through the courts. He fought for his land, for his people, through legal methods. So he's taking up arms, uh, hoping to get justice by going to war. Vic, what can you tell us about the Wappingers? There's two main groups of, or two main language groups of Native people in New York at the time. There were the Algonquin-speaking people, such as uh, the Lenape people out on Long Island, the Wappingers in the lower Hudson Valley, the Mohicans, sort of in the central to... uh, the northern, sort of in the mid-Hudson Valley to the to maybe Saratoga County, and uh, also the the Delaware of the Muncie in the Del- Delaware River Valley. There's also the Iroquois, um, the f- very powerful Six Nations, Mohawks, Oneida, Onondaga. Cayuga, Seneca, and Tuscarora. The Algonquin-speaking people were in New York first. They were probably here about uh, 12,000 years ago, maybe 13,000, 14,000 years ago. They settled New York State. Iroquois came later, according to Dean Snow, an anthropologist, between 600 A.D. and 800 A.D. They crossed the Alleghenies into New York State, and they drove the Algonquin-speaking people um, Downstate. So the Wappingers are uh, an Algonquin speaking people. At the time of European contact, they estimate there was probably about 13,000 of them here. They're closely related to the Mohicans, which are a little north of them, starting in Columbia County, and the uh, Lenape or the Delaware and the Del- Delaware River Valley. They occupied the area from maybe New York City to where Dutchess County ends today. Then you start getting into um, Mohican territory. They were highly decentralized. They weren't a formal um, confederation like the Iroquois were. They were highly decentralized. Probably there were about 18 bands or so spread throughout uh, as many villages. They were an agricultural people. They grew the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. And, of course, 
you know, hunting and fishing. It was a, a land of plenty. They're exposed um, to the Dutch pretty early when Henry Hudson sails up to Hudson and six, what is now the Hudson in 1609. Um, they run into the Wappingers and um, they do some descriptions of them. The Wappingers were very friendly toward them and uh, interested in trading. They described the Wappinger men wearing kind of what we would call now a mohawk haircut, kind of a rooster comb with a long uh, scalp lock. The women uh, also, they, they're described as attractive with fine features with long black hair. Unfortunately, um, after the Dutch came, they were exposed to many European diseases, which kind of just was a nightmare for them. It was just horrendous. And also, there was a war against the Dutch. Uh, I think 1642 to 44, the Mohawks uh, helped the Dutch defeat the Wappinger. Uh, Wappingers. So by 1700, there's only about a thousand of them left. They they lose 90 percent of their population in less than a century. Um, they side with the British and the French and Indian War when they come back from Canada. They discover that the Phillips family has occupied their land. Um, they still owned a couple hundred acres and what a couple hundred thousand acres in what is now Putnam County and um, Southern Dutchess County. And they rented this land out to tenants. They had, you know, good agreements with tenants. While they were away at war, they found out when they returned from war, they found out that the Phillips family had actually installed their own tenants and um, demanded, you know, that the existing tenants pay to them. So there were rent rights. This led to rent wars uh, by some of the existing tenants. However, it doesn't seem like the Wappingers themselves were involved in that. They tried to fight it legally through the courts. So they uh, actually presented their their case to uh, the New York Lieutenant Governor Colton at the time, and uh, a group that was basically made of the landlords who rejected their claim. They pulled out this deed, which was dated 1702, that nobody knew anything about. It was never recorded. It was just kind of bogus, but it was accepted as legal. Um Undeterred, they actually found the sponsor, a man by the name of William Gray, who agreed to uh, underwrite their trip to England because they wanted to speak, you know, present their case to the uh, King George III. Greg did this. He was so confident that they would win their case that he underwrote this trip in exchange for their promise that they would um, lease, uh, give him a 99 year lease on a certain amount of land. So uh, four of the Wappinger men and three women sailed to England with Greg 
and some translators, though they really didn't need translators because uh, they spoke English. They were probably really rioters who were on the lam, you know, needed to get out of the United States for a little while. So they brought them on as uh, as translators. They um, actually, they, they're welcome to England. They're treated pretty well there. They're there about three months, and they attend a lot of balls. They put on dances. They sing songs. They're they're covered in the newspapers. The newspapers praise them as friends of England, and they want them to feel welcome. King George the uh, Third refused to meet them with them because one, he didn't invite them, and two, because they weren't really sponsored by the colonial. New York government, so it's kind of a catch-22 situation, because it was uh, really the the government who had swindled them, who they were opposing. But uh, the Lord of Trades does agree to meet with them, and they investigate the matter, and they chastise the action of uh, New York and order the governor to reopen the case and treat them justly. So they sailed back to New York, and they feel pretty good about themselves. But um, basically, the governor hears out the case with the same board, and the decision's the same. So after that, they just end up in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, uh, sort of a community of many displaced tribes in, in New England and New York. Um, unfortunately... They can't get any of their land back. Um, they gravitate toward uh, the side of the Patriots during the war. They travel down to the siege of Boston, and they offer their services to George Washington. And at first, he's he doesn't reject them, but he he tells them he'll, he'll call them if he's if they're needed. And eventually they are needed, and he does call them. And they serve in various capacities as scouts throughout the war at many engagements. Unfortunately, after the British evacuate Philadelphia and come back to New York, the Wappingers are asked to uh, patrol the neutral ground, Westchester County, to help out the New York militia and the New York State troops, and they're lured into kind of an ambush in August uh, 1778, right on the Westchester Bronx border, where most of them are are really killed. They're outnumbered five to one in this battle of uh, Kingsbridge. And that pretty much ends their existence as a separate nation. There just wasn't enough of them left. By the time of the war, to be it was probably only 200 or so, maybe even less. Um, today, their descendants probably belong to the Muncie, Stockbridge, Mohican um, nation, which has its reservation out in Wisconsin. And they're small. There's only about 1,500 of them. And like I said, those those three tribes, the Muncie, which they're also known as the Delaware, the Mohican, the uh Wappinger, they they were from New York City up to um, the whole sub, central New York and the whole southern tier. 
Vic, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I think it helps us. It helps us realize that we're beginning to view the revolutionary era differently. Monuments help us celebrate our heritage and our culture. They're, they are an important because they reflect our values and they help people, they help educate people. A monument like this could not have been built um, at the end of the revolution or even during a centennial or maybe the bicentennial. But now, you know, there's a lot of um, issues that are being addressed regarding Native Americans. Um, a lot of Native Americans find the use of mascots demeaning, insulting, like they're being made fun of. So, and a lot of these are changing. And, and monuments to slave owners are coming down. General Philip Schuyler's monument normally was just uh, taken down. So, this shows that we're, you know, we're beginning to invert embrace our diversity a little more, I believe, and to help celebrate a lot of these soldiers, Revolutionary War soldiers and warriors who have been almost invisible. More people will see that uh, monument than will read, you know, the books and articles that scholars, scholars write. And it will help educate them about their past and the, the past history of the area. Vic DeSanto, thanks again. You're welcome. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.